midnight. Um, somewhere around kid two that stopped for my wife and I for a couple years. And then we're, this year we're trying to bring it back. We're trying to stay up till midnight again this year. And uh, the hard thing is the kids don't know that it's New Year's and you're supposed to sleep in. They're still up at six, so uh, that makes it hard. But, but my other motivation for doing it is because if you don't stay up and you go to sleep at a normal time, is that you get woken up about an hour later in a panic uh, that you are, that the purge has started or, or you're in, in war or something just with the amount of explosions and pots and pans and fireworks and everything going on around you. I feel like every year I wake up just panicked of what's going on and then remember it's New Year's. Okay, yeah, it's New Year's. So this year we're going to do it. We're going to stay up and uh, yeah, yeah, I hope you guys have a good New Year's as well. Um, you know, considering New Year's uh, for this message for this week, it, it got me considering and contemplating, thinking about pursuit, thinking about the things that we pursue. Is that, is that the rain? Do we hear that on the roof? That's so cool. I think it's the first time I've ever had rain during service. That's fun. Okay. Um, thinking about pursuit, the things that we pursue in this sense of renewed, renewed pursuit, right? And that's what New Year's resolutions are. They're this renewed pursuit because let's be honest, the gym didn't open this year right? They didn't invent candy yesterday. Uh, so why is there suddenly on this first that we decide to do this? It is a sense of renewed pursuit, renewed pursuit. It's a season that we reevaluate our lives and rekindle our pursuits. And if we're good at any resolutions, they become something that occupy our minds, occupy our time, something we become students of, that we are, uh, to a certain degree, obsessing over as we're trying to bring about a change in our lives, change our pursuits, change our patterns. And this theme of renewal that we exercise with New Year's resolutions, this theme of renewal is, uh, is something that's actually very, very deeply embedded in, into uh, scriptural values. Themes of renewal or, or recreation and we don't think about it too much, but it's actually one of the strongest values and themes that we find uh, for, the Israel, for the Israelite people throughout Scripture. The garden is obviously the image of creation. It is the place of perfection where there is not need, where there's perfect harmony, where everything uh, is created and, and exists in that shalom. And so in times of need or in times of distress, the people of Israel will focus on this image of the garden. And it becomes massively important to them. Even there's echoes of it that go throughout the biblical story. Uh, many symbols of it echo in the garden. If you read part of the, 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 the creation of the garden narrative in Genesis 2, you'll see that, that uh, in the, the land of Eden, God plants a garden in the east. And that in the east, there's this garden, and then in the center of the garden is this tree. And so there's almost like this, these layers or the, these, 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 these deepening circles of this existence. And then we see that echoed other places. In the ark, there are these three layers. Uh, Noah's ark, there's three layers of, of its construction. In, the, in the, uh, the tabernacle, and then eventually the temple, we see there are three layers of its structure, the courtyard and the holy sanctuary and the holy of holies. It's echoing back to this very same concept of the garden, the place where God creates, recreates, where there is flourishing, there's blessing that comes from this. In fact, even in the temple, we see on the doors and on, on the altar itself depictions of the cherubim which are these creatures that God has protecting the garden. 
and, and woven into the, the curtains and painted on the walls are, are images of, of fruit-bearing trees that are, that are just full of fruit. It's, it's meant to bring you back to the place of the garden, the place where God dwells richly and it is flourishing and it is blessing and it is goodness. And whenever the people get, as I said, far away from that, they look back and that becomes their hope, is this act of recreation, this act of renewal, that if they remain close to the God who created that, then perhaps he can recreate them. And this theme is strong in scripture, this echoing of the garden. And the presence of God's spirit produces creation and renewal, and they call this recreation and this renewal God's blessing. I'm not even going to try and give a societal definition for the word blessing because it's been used in weird ways in social media. Uh, but let me give you just a biblical understanding of the word blessing. Blessing is the flourishing and multiplication that comes from the presence and favor of God. The flourishing and multiplication that comes from the presence and favor of God. The story of the Bible is about God creating a world for the purpose of it to live in his blessing, to experience flourishing and multiplication because of his presence. And yet the struggle that we see throughout all of scripture is to trust God to be the source of that blessing uh, or to not trust him, to go around him, to try and, and scratch and claw our way to what we think might be a better life, a greater life a more fulfilling life than the one that he is promising. Listen to, his, for your second, uh, listen to this, the way scripture describes the effects of remaining close to God's blessing. Psalms 1, 1 through 6 said, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners uh, that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who yields its fruit in its season and whose leaves do not wither. Whether they, whatever they do prospers, not so with the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Oh, sorry, did I skip a line there? <laughs> sorry. Uh, blessed are those who do not uh, walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners that, take, uh, that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so with the wicked. They are like chaff in the wind which blows away. Therefore, the, wick, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction." This is this reoccurring narrative in Scripture that God is promising that His way is better. God is promising that if you stay near Him, He will bless you and, and to trust and believe that that way is better. And yet time and time again, as we look through the narrative, we see that failing to happen. We see God offering His blessing, yet the people choosing to not trust Him, to reach out and grab for themselves what life has to offer in their eyes and corrupting that. A couple quick examples. Adam and Eve placed in the garden. You have that first picture there, just our background pictures. Uh, tasked with working the garden. Their work is fruitful. There is no need. I found it interesting that they are working, 
right? What does perfection look like? What does blessing look like? Is it just relaxing all day? No, they are tasked to tend to the garden, but their efforts are fruitful, and there's no need. It means to be good stewards of what God has given you, and that will allow all these efforts to be blessed and to flourish. But they're tempted by what? A piece of fruit? No. They are tempted by reaching out and taking something for themselves. They're tempted by this idea that maybe what God is telling them is not the truth. Maybe what God is offering them is fine, but maybe there's more. And maybe what God is not offering is even better than what he is. They're tempted to reach out and seize their own blessing, not trusting his blessing. And when they do that, they turn this blessing into a curse. They work the land, but the land is cursed and will fight against them. One of the easiest and earliest images of blessing we find in Scripture is childbirth. And yet when it is cursed, it comes at a cost. It is painful. Next we see Abraham. God chooses Abraham and says, I am going to bless you richly. And through you, my blessing is going to be reintroduced to the world. Through you, it's going to go out and bless the entire world. I'm going to make you a great nation. A great nation that bears my name and through you the whole world will be blessed. And Abraham says, that sounds great. And 20 years later, he still does not have the first child. And he says, how, how am I supposed to become this great nation if I haven't even had this first child? And so he loses trust in God's promise of blessing and, and, and he sleeps with his servant Hagar. He tries to force God's blessing himself. He's forcing it himself. And then later his son, his grandson, Jacob, is one of the clearest examples of this blessing dilemma. Uh, Jacob's a funny character, an interesting character. We did a long series on Jacob. Gosh, what was that, five, six years ago, a long time ago. And it's great because I think it was, uh, it was like the first like, anti-hero we see in, in Scripture that everyone seemed to relate to. Uh, Jacob's name means deceiver, and he's, he's this, this clear example of someone who is trying to, to who should, should be just receiving this gift of blessing from God, and yet refuses to. He's trying to find it on his own. He's trying to reach out and seize the goodness of life apart from God. Let, let's read the setup a little bit. It starts with his dad and, and, and mom, Isaac and Rebecca. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. This is an interesting prophecy that God just gives. The older will serve the younger. That this promised blessing of Abraham will pass not to the older, but will pass to the younger, will pass to Jacob. When the time came for her to give birth, there were, two, there were, twins born, two, there, there were twin boys in her womb. Uh, very fitting for today. The first to come out was red. His whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out. And uh, it was very appropriate for today, right? Only one had the hair, which a little bit, by the way, of pot calling the kettle black, I think, from, yeah, from you, Ryan. But uh, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he, named, he was named Jacob. Now, that, that image doesn't really resonate with us as, as much, but that image to them of grabbing his heel was, was this idea of reaching out and seizing something that wasn't belonging to him. 
That from his birth, he is depicted as, as this guy who is trying to seize things that don't belong to him. And yet, oddly enough, this blessing is his. God says this blessing will go to him. And we look through his life. He takes advantage of his famished brother at a time when his brother is, 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 is so hungry he's about to die. And he trades him for a bowl of soup, his birthright, and this blessing. He tricks his blind father to inherit Abraham's blessing. God said, I'm going to give it to Jacob anyways. But Jacob is trying to take his future into his own hands, and he seizes it. He goes to live with his uncle Laban, and, and he meets his match with Laban. The two of them are both deceivers, and it goes back and forth for many years of them both taking advantage of each other. And then he's on his way back. We get to this, this powerful story. He's on his way back to his homeland, and he's terrified when he realizes that who's going to be waiting for him there is Esau. He's terrified of this. So first he sends gifts ahead. He sends some, some servants with cattle and says, when you, when you see Esau, say, these are yours on behalf of Jacob. So that maybe by the time he sees Jacob, he's just in a good mood because he just, he just got tons of gifts that day. And they arrive at this river bank. And the other side is the land where, Jacob, where Esau will be. And they're on this river bank. And, and as they get there, he says he sees angels of God. And he says, this place is God's camp. It's interesting to remember. Later that night, he wakes up in the night. He is terrified of this impending meeting of Esau. So he sends his, his, his wives, his kids, all of his possessions, everything across the river. And stays on this side by himself. And shortly after, it says that he begins to fight with someone. Well, who's over there? Who was the only other creatures or, or beings on this side of the river. Let me hear from you. These angels of God. It's interesting. Is this night before he's going to meet Esau, he sends everything across and he stays and he begins to fight with what he thinks are these angels of God and, and he finds out later is actually God himself and he's, he's fighting with him. He's wrestling with him. And, and you got to hear uh, in, in a second that, that this, their, their conversation that's happening at the end of this fight. But it says during this fight, kind of interestingly enough, that God strikes him. And uh, some translations actually use the, what it says in the Hebrew is, is that God strikes him in the, the hollow of the thigh, right? Um, so hard that his hip pops out, right? And the hollow of the thigh is where your, your thigh kind of comes back up to your waist. It's the groin. It's the crotch. He gets, he gets hit in the crotch so hard that his hip pops out. Now, I don't, yeah, you, know, you, you could say that maybe you've had a hard year or you've had a lot happen or God's you know, been down on your luck, but it's, it's got to hit you in the crotch this year. I, I, that's, that, that's a rough year. And this isn't just to be funny. There, there's a significance here. God, God reaches out and removes Jacob's ability to create his own blessing. This is interesting. He takes Jacob's ability to create his own blessing. At this point, Jacob has 11 kids, and it's believed that, that his, his wife is already pregnant with Benjamin. He doesn't... Produce any more kids after this moment. He's fighting with God. You know, I had, I had a, a similar experience to this. Not, not similar. I, I don't know how to say this. I had a, um, hmm, a moment where God took away something that I was trying to seize control over. We've shared the example or the story multiple times of, of our church's journey, Soundhouse's journey to end up here. 
Uh, and we were mobile for seven, eight years, and, and I, I ran our mobile setup, and it was, it was a huge operation. We had 40 volunteers that served every month to set up and tear down the church in a middle school. And uh, we had, uh, every month, the principal extended our permit. And so we were, we were growing as a church, we were building our church, and yet at the same time, it would take nothing to have us lose our permit and be homeless. And the entire time, as you know, Ryan shared this as well, we have a neighbor across the street from the school who is writing congressmen letters and is writing us cease and assist letters and, and uh, is threat. he promises to his face, he said, I will get rid of you guys, right? So we, we were under this pressure and I was panicked. After every difficult teardown, I would go home and be on LoopNet looking for properties because I was saying we, we have to, to secure the future of, of Soundhouse. We have to find a home. And, and I don't know how, but Ryan had such faith through that. He would always say, hey, God wants this church more than we do. And God's gotten us this far. Let's trust him in that. I did not. And I, I would find properties, and we toured multiple properties, and that we were trying to make happen, and uh, they were all just incredibly expensive, not really possible, not feasible. And then COVID hit, and the school district canceled all permits. What I was most anxious about was taken from me. This, this blow to the crotch, you could say, was, was, was taken at that moment. And then we ended up online, we ended up in a, in a muddy park. We would have been out at the park on a day like today, and uh, the church was, was shrinking in, in winter, especially when it was muddy, and people, uh, you know, doing workout classes right behind us, and there was a Sunday where Ryan's preaching, and someone walked their dog and went to the bathroom right next to him. It was like, you see, you see we're trying to do something here, don't you? So I'm, I'm watching this, panicked, of like, is this, is this how it ends? We quit our jobs, moved cities, you know, we believed in this church. Is, is this how it ends? Just taken from us. And then we get a phone call from people we didn't even know yet about a church that had a property but was looking for a pastor. And, and this came together. And by the time we got here, I gave up on my anxiety over a property. Not just because we had one, but because I was shown that our future as a church is in God's hands. What Ryan was saying the whole time along, I didn't know how to believe it. I didn't know how to trust that. That's what we see happening here with Jacob. The blessing was his from the beginning, and yet he cannot stop crawling and scheming and, and reaching out and grasping it, trying to seize it for himself. And God removes that from him. And let's see how this story ends. It's powerful. Genesis 32. It says, the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Why does Jacob even care? Why is he in this situation? He's terrified of meeting his brother the next day, and he's looking for an ace in the hole. He needs something. And he says, I'm going to seize one of these angels. I'm going to fight him. I'm going to force him to bless me before I have to go meet Esau. And maybe, maybe that will make it work. I will not let you go unless you bless me, the man asked him. What is your name, Jacob? Uh, he answered. Uh, Jacob, he answered, and the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, deceiver, but Israel, because you have struggled with God, sometimes I should say fought, contended with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name, but he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Penel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face 
and yet my life was spared. He fights God to demand further blessing. Yet this entire time, God has simply been trying to hand him a blessing. The people of God, Israel, get their namesake from this very moment. Those who contend, who fight, who struggle with God, instead of simply and obediently receiving the blessing he is trying to give them. Consider much of the Old Testament, right? Does that not make sense? How much is God trying to, he saves them from Egypt and says, I'm going to make you a people. 24 hours later, they're, they're creating idols. He says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to clear this land. and It is going to be a fruitful, flourishing land, and it will be yours. And, and then before you know it, they're worshiping uh, the gods from, from across the river. It is a continual story of, of, of God saying, here is a blessed life. And them saying, that's great. I'm also interested in that. I want something else as well. This anxious hustling and scheming to try to seize a better life. Yet all along, God has been trying to hand you a better life. Uh, this is where my own conviction set in. So, um, I, you know, uh, many sermons you learn something from as well as you're preparing to preach it. You feel convicted. I felt this week like I'm preaching to myself. So if, if this hits you at all, that's great. But I know I'm a target audience for this one. Uh, I know myself to be a follower of Jesus. I seek to live a morally, and uh, I seek to live morally, and I seek to live according to the values of His kingdom that we see in the Gospels in the life of Jesus Christ. But I am a constant pursuer of everything else. Sarah found this piece of paper from a class in high school, and uh, it was as we were about to graduate, and it, you were to write out your, your 10 goals for the next 10 years, things you wanted to achieve. And um, gosh, I can't remember, I had two or three up top, marry a wonderful woman was one. I graduate college, more difficult than it sounded. Um, marry a wonderful woman, dominate at surfing was number three. That ended in high school, if it ever started. Um, and then the next seven lines, I just wrote a prayer. I wrote a prayer to myself, well, to God, but I wrote a prayer for myself to read later. To keep myself humble, to care about his kingdom, and not my own ambitions. And, and I don't say that proudly. I say that uh, mournfully. Because while, I, like I said, I, I am a disciple of Christ, I, I am still... Uh, living according to his, his laws and seeking to become closer to Christ, I think about how much I pursue everything else. I think about when I started dating my wife, Sarah, in high school, and uh, I dedicated my entire math class, this is probably why college is a little hard, I dedicated my entire math class uh, to, to thinking of romantic gestures and dates for Sarah. That was... Not a distraction, that was its intent. It was notebook open, pen in hand, and I think of, of, of just romantic gestures or dates that, that I could provide for Sarah. Um, I dedicate my commute nowadays to podcasts, uh, learning of good business practices for some of our rental properties and stuff, as well as fantasy football news. And that paid off because I won the church league this year. So. <laughs> 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. When am I romanticizing? And when am I, I passionately seeking to find new ways to grow closer to God and become a greater witness to God's goodness? As I started to formulate the sermon, I was becoming incredibly convicted myself. Like I said, it's not that I'm, I've gone astray and I'm living some of the life. I'm, I'm living the life. But it's more a matter of, are you checking the boxes as a Christian? Or are you pursuing God? That is so different. Right? There's a difference if you go into work and you're saying, I'm putting in my hours versus saying, I want to learn everything about this business and I want to grow in this business and I want to excel in this business. That's so different. And I, I was just studying for this message, and I became so convicted of, of when was the last time that I was pursuing God, pursuing my faith, seeking to grow in new ways. You know, um, it's a conviction of my priorities is what it really is. Uh, all these other things are good. They're not bad. They're good. Especially the fantasy football. No, it's all good. Uh, it's a matter of where am I putting my pursuit, my energy. Coming back to news resolutions. How many of you thought of 10 great New Year's resolutions and how many of them included growing deeper in your faith? I'm going to be honest, I was convicted of that. Uh, my wife and I, we do, um, we call them like budget meetings, right? Everyone's like, look at the finances and all that and, and make some decisions. Uh, we'll have parenting meetings, you know, where we're just talking about ways we're raising our daughters and want to do something different, whatever. Uh, and we'll even have kind of checkups on our faith, you know, oh, how's it going with your devotional life, stuff like that. But it hit me, and for the first time, we had a ministry meeting. We said, um, how do I feel like I am being used for God's kingdom? And outside of my vocation, right? But as a passion of my life, how am I being used for God's kingdom? And actually, we even had an, a, a venture that we were looking at as a business opportunity that we, after this conversation, were saying, I think this is just an act of service. Um, I think this is just a way of serving the kingdom. We started talking about who do you feel like God is placing on your heart to minister to, to be mindful of, to go out of your way to show God's love to. What does it look like to trust in the blessing of God? To put his priorities first. To pursue his blessing that he offers over trying to reach out and sees the things that you can see yourself. Uh, I want to look at Matthew 6 for this. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew 6. That's, we're going to be kind of in there for the last little part of this message. Matthew 6, verse 24 is where we'll, we'll start there. And it, it, it talks about these kind of values of what it looks like to, to serve uh, God first. It reads in Matthew 6, verse 24, it says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What does it mean to serve something? You cannot serve God and money. You can't have a job and be a Christian? I don't think that's what it means. So what does it mean to serve that? I found this biblical commentator who had, a, had a, an excellent little description of this that I thought was beautiful I wanted to share with you. He says the concluding, his last name is Boring. That's not helping, okay? The professor, his last name is Boring. So the concluding, verse 24, only brings out the presupposition of the passage as a whole, that the human life is not self-sufficient, 
that we find the meaning in our lives outside ourselves, that human life inescapably serves something that gives it meaning. The choice is not whether we shall serve, but what or whom we shall serve. This presupposition about who we are, about who we are confronts our self-understanding with a radical challenge. It's to acknowledge the fact that you are serving something. You are serving someone and evaluating your priorities, evaluating your pursuits, where it is that you are putting your pursuits to ask what is it that I am serving with my life. Let's keep going with this. Verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That's the key word, anxious. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more important than food? and the body more than clothing. Now, um, I struggled with this passage for a while uh, because I recognize, like probably most of us here, is that I've never truly dealt with food insecurity. Um, I've dealt with food choices of, you know, you can't get the fancy cheeses at Costco, or what, like, I've, yes, I've dealt with that. Or where is date night? That's, a, that's you know, there's a huge scale there. Um, but this idea of not having the funds to buy the food that we need for the day, I've never gotten to that point. I witnessed it, though. When, uh, when Sarah and I first got married, we lived in San Diego in these low-income apartments you had to qualify, not a good kind of qualify, to get into. And, um, and you know, we were, we were, gosh, the first year of marriage there, and it was a great apartment. But I remember this one time, we came home with groceries, and as we are getting out of the elevator, our neighbor from across the hall, single mom with a couple kids, was going into the elevator. And she said, oh, grocery day? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And then she goes, oh, that's great. Yeah, we don't get paid till next week. And it hit me that I've never equated my paycheck with my ability to eat, and, and hers was. Um, that was. It was strange for me to see that level of, of, of food insecurity where it was that dependent. The other interesting thing about this is that Jesus is speaking to a crowd who does understand this. He is speaking to an impoverished and oppressed people in the countryside. Not all of them, but many of them are facing provision or protection insecurity. And yet even to them, he tells them not to be anxious about these things. That there are other priorities. Now, he doesn't tell them not to eat. He doesn't tell them not to, to wear clothes. He tells them not to be anxious. Don't be obsessed over, over what you'll eat or what you will wear. Uh, don't, don't be envious of what other people get to eat or what other people get to wear. He's saying, don't you see that your life is, is worth more than just what you're putting in your mouth or worth more than just what you are draping over you? He's trying to go after what is the pursuit of your life. He continues, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how uh, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. 
Therefore do not be anxious, once again, anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those who do not believe in God, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Listen to this last verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Not don't do these other things. Not, not don't go buy groceries, right? Not don't, uh, don't buy clothes if you need clothes. That's not the point. But it's this, this anxiousness. It's this, this obsession. It's this, this focus of your life. And so he looks at this impoverished people and said, if the focus of your life is just food, then you are devaluing your life. Your life is worth so much more. He says, instead, seek first God's kingdom. Because in your anxiety, you fail to see God's blessing as the provider. I was thinking through some scenarios of what this might look like. I said, if I devote every ounce of pursuit to my health, but do not see every breath as a gift from God, I have failed my body. If I work multiple side jobs and penny pinch to put away as much money as I can and yet don't learn to trust God, I fail to ever have enough. If I hustle and work hard to feed my kids but do not teach them that the food on the table is a gift from God, I fail them. It's not that these things aren't important. It's that connecting yourself to God as the source of all blessing in this life is more important is more important than even what it is that we are eating or what it is that we are wearing. It is more important to secure that. So seek first the kingdom. I was thinking about this. It only makes sense if you can answer this question a certain way. You can put this question up there, Don. Do you see God as the answer in life and not just death? I think seeking first his kingdom only makes sense if you answer that in a certain way. Because I think... Most Christians, all Christians, I would say, if you said the sinner's prayer, it's because you see God as the answer to death. You see God as, as offering salvation, as offering eternal life. Great. He is. That's on the table. But if you do not see God as an answer to life, then seeking first his kingdom won't make sense. If you see God as the answer to life, basically, if you believe that God offers a better way of living, then seeking first his kingdom makes sense. To live a life that God offers, that he tells us, is better. We're going to um, end with a song in a little bit called Cornerstone. And I, I grabbed a, a, a brick. Now, um, I'm definitely a DIY guy. Um, uh, if I don't think about the food that I eat or the clothes that I wear, but I think about the tools that I use. Right? I've got some tools. And um, I've never done much masonry, but I've done some uh, metal roofing before, and it's very similar in this principle of your first one needs to be perfect, right? And in Scripture, it uses this, this phrase that, that those who, who the leaders have rejected will become the cornerstone, and it's, it's a prophecy speaking to Christ, that he will become the cornerstone of God's kingdom, the cornerstone for all of us. 
Like I said, I've done some roof. I did one a couple weeks ago. And uh, if you don't get that first aluminum panel straight, uh, they all build off of that. And what happens is you get down to the other end of the roof and you realize how far off you really were. If you've attempted this, you know this. It seems so simple at first. And then you get way too far into it and you realize, oh, I messed up four hours ago. Very similar with this cornerstone, when this biblical terminology is in their construction, the most important stone was this very first corner. If you think about it, if you're building a building, you place this, and down this line is where the building will continue that way, and down this line is where it will continue that way. So this stone has to be perfect. And if it is, you begin to build your entire life off of this stone. I'm so glad we're ending with the song Cornerstone because that's, that's what we're saying today. Is, is, is All these other pursuits in our life are fine. That's fine. But the question is, is God your first pursuit? Do you seek first his kingdom? Because if you do, if you seek first his kingdom, that is a foundation that you can build the rest of your life on. I used to use this illustration as a youth ministry of a plate, right? And people say they got a lot on their plate and they're juggling all these different things on their plate. And they're realizing when you become a Christian, it is identifying that the plate is Christ. So it's not how do I balance my faith amongst my job and amongst my family and amongst my finances. and amongst It's realizing I am a follower of Christ. Now with that established, how am I a father, a husband, a co-worker as a follower of Christ is very similar. Christ is your first pursuit. If his kingdom is of your first priority, you then will look at the rest of your life, all the, def- all the different avenues and aspects of your life of saying, how do I build them off of this? My hope is first and foremost in Christ. I hope in uh, 2024 is the year that you get in good health. I'm, I'm on that, that trip too. I hope 2024 is the year that you reach your financial uh, and career goals. I hope that 2024 is the year that you maintain the relationships that are healthy for you. Uh, And I hope that in 2024, you see the growth and maturity in your children that you've been praying for or in your spouse that you've been praying for. But before all of those, I hope in 2024 is the year that you learn and I learn to see God as the source of true blessing. God is the primary source of all that is good in this life. That we place our hope in him. That we put everything that we are anxious about in his hands. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are tasked with a lot in our lives. We are pulled in different ways. We have many different responsibilities. And yet, Lord, I pray that our primary responsibility is made clear to us today. Our primary pursuit is you and your kingdom. That we trust you, because those other things are important, so that when we trust you enough to say, I put my primary pursuit into you and your kingdom, it is trusting that you will be there. It is trusting that you will then bless our other efforts as parents, as, as spouses, as, as people who live in a, in a financial world, in a society. Lord, that you will bless those because we are putting our, first and foremost, our hope in you, our pursuit in you. Lord, allow that faith of us trusting you 
to have rippling effects, effects of blessing in all aspects of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you stand with me for this last song?